Before we begin this week's conversation, I want to let you know about a new podcast named Disorder. The Disorder podcast is hosted by NATO Foundation analyst Jason Pack and former British diplomat Alexandra Hall Hall. It examines the increasing chaos of our times, the rise of hybrid warfare, cyber misinformation, transnational crime, corruption, global warming, immigration flows, and anti-immigrant sentiment. The Disorder podcast focuses on our global system via engaging storytelling, discussions with experts and opinion formers, reporting, and solutions and suggestions for what can be done about it all. Find and follow Disorder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello. From its opening in 1822, the Fulton Market was an essential part of life in old New York, selling vegetables grown on Long Island, fruit harvested in Cuba, lobsters taken from the waters of Maine, chickens raised in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and oysters and fish hauled forth from New York Harbor itself. Over the decades, Fulton Market became known as Fulton Fish Market, dominated by wholesale dealers in fish that came not only from New York Harbor, but ultimately from all over the world. What Chicago became for beef, New York City became for fish. A business that specializes in fish, writes my guest Jonathan Reese, has to regularize an inevitably uneven supply through a mixture of knowledge and technology. Reese's book, The Fulton Fish Market, A History, is therefore not simply the story of the creation, life, and decline of a New York place, but a description of that place where community, politics, economy, nature, and culture all came together on the New York waterfront. Jonathan Reese is professor of history at Colorado State University, Pueblo. This is his third appearance on Historically Thinking. He was last on in episode 222, that's 222, to describe the strange career of Harvey Wiley. Jonathan Reese, welcome back to Historically Thinking. Thank you for having me. Three is well, a lot. I really yeah, appreciate I it. <laughs> two, two more, you get a jacket or a, oh, nice. maybe a coffee cup. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so – I'm very curious. I, uh, reading your book, I then rummaged around my hard drive and found an old, um, archaeological report from Colonial Williamsburg because that's the kind of exciting life I lead that I have such things on my hard drive. And it won a report identifying trash in wells, which, you know, archaeologists get really excited about. In terms of food artifacts, it was something like 97% beef and mutton and maybe the remaining three included fish. So it would seem that at one point, Americans didn't eat much fish. Is that true? Did New Yorkers always eat fish, a lot of fish? New Yorkers did not always eat a lot of fish. Uh, Native Americans did. But when New York becomes New York, fish is looked down on uh, for I mean, based on the archaeological work done up there, none of which I've done, but I've read, uh, a good 100, 200 years, fish is, is just what you eat to get by. It's not something that you go out and look for. And it sort of makes sense. It's hard to get fish once it becomes a populated place, unless you go out and do the fishing and nobody has time to go fish themselves. 
and there's no way to keep it fresh. So if you are going to eat fish, you have to buy it right away and cook it right away. Um, as supplies increase and the technology gets better, fish becomes just a, a better option and more people are willing to eat it. You talk about the problems of selling fish in a market. Now, on one level, as you write, expensive fish has, since the Persians and the Chinese empires, been taken great distances for the wealthy. But nonetheless, there are certain problems with bringing fish to market that um, you don't encounter with, say, beef. Would that be fair? Yes, yeah, um, fish rots faster. Um, it's so interesting. I, what really is important is the part of the chain that you're talking about. And it took me to the start of the research to realize something which I think every fisherman knew, uh, which is the easiest way to preserve a fish is to not kill it. And to not kill it means that you're going to keep it in the water on the boat. And that is the solution for you know many, many years, which will make fish fresh off the boat. But it's not like there's a little aquarium in every fishmonger's cart that they can carry around. Uh, so then that becomes a much bigger problem once you reach the market. And of course, there are other ways, uh, you know, you're talking about the Persians, there are other ways to preserve fish, salting it, drying it, what have you. And that's also true of beef. Um, but uh, the, there's nothing like fresh fish, uh, and and it's difficult to prepare. And uh, you know, it's, it starts as a restaurant thing. God, there's so much in this. <laughs> I'm, my organizing principle in the book is the fish provisioning chain, and going from water to market is a big step, and going from market to table is a big step. Um, and sometimes the distance matters more than the time. Sometimes the time matters more than the distance. Sometimes the technology matters more than the distance. It just depends on what step we're talking about. And sometimes which fish. Uh-huh. So let's start with Fulton Market's uh, beginning. People who okay. have the Fulton Fish Market, and, and, and this is I, almost only New Yorkers listening to this, will have Fulton Fish Market sort of seared in their memory or in their mytholo mythological memory of New York. But Fulton Market doesn't open until almost 200 years into the history of New York City. And then it's not Fulton Fish Market, it's Fulton Market. So you could you describe the early days of Fulton Market? Yes. Yeah, so so the early days of New York City, you know, there are no grocery stores. So people had to go to one of, uh, I forget the exact number, but it's in the, you know, 15 to 30 range of markets that are all around the city in order to get everything. And Fulton Market starts as one of those everything markets where there's, there's meat, there's vegetables, there's fruit. Um, there's just anything you needed to live. You would go to Fulton Market. Over time, because Fulton Market is right next to the water, it comes to specialize in fish because the boats can just pull up to the market um, and people can buy the fish right off the boat. So, so much of this story has something, everything to do with geography and transportation. And so yes. Fulton Market is, is placed, um, 
you know, right next to, I think it's the point where Washington's troop evac- troops evacuate from Brooklyn in 1776. It's right. It is the Brooklyn Ferry connection. So it, it is, is the perfect place for people going home to Brooklyn. They stop, they go through as Fulton Market on the way home, uh, as they, and, and vice versa. Um, as a non-colonialist, I will also note that it is just south of the Brooklyn Bridge. Yes, right. And so, it, it, and it's next to the uh, various tran- the, the transatlantic ocean uh, yes. stops or hubs of yeah. the 19th century are there as, are nearby as well. So it is in a transportation in- nexus. Yeah, it's it's the gateway to New York for most of the 19th century. People who are arriving will arrive somewhere in that neighborhood. So Fulton's then position changes as New York expands. So as the geography of New York is altered, then Fulton's role as a marketplace or also changes. Yeah, you lose the walk-in traffic, uh, particularly when the Brooklyn Bridge comes in, because the Brooklyn Bridge, oh, I forgot the right word, but when you come down the Brooklyn Bridge onto to dry land again, you're about 10 blocks into Manhattan. And it used to be that people, as you said, would get off the Brooklyn Ferry and the market would be right there. And when you lose that traffic, the neighborhood changes and the nature of the business changes from something that used to be very uh, consumer facing to something that just becomes a wholesale market. Uh, All the fish will collect there. And then only the people who are selling fish would come to Fulton Market to pick up the fish and then uh, you know, take it to wherever they're going to be consuming it. Before we get to wholesaling, let's talk about the way some of the important fish, important fish for New York yes. City. Um, and oh, important, okay. I should it's, say important, it's hard important to pick. Seafood. It's hard to pick, and I don't want to. We yeah. we're gonna pick two. You you have a couple chapters devoted to oysters. I grew up in an oystering village in South Jersey, uh, which had up until you know probably the 50s depended upon the oyster as its chief li- means of livelihood and there are other communities like that on the Delaware Bay so i have a lot i yeah. have lots of opinions about oysters but it's i never realized well i kind of knew this but you can read about oysters in dickens american notes you can read about oysters in other places oysters were so ubiquitous in 19th century new york and in 19th century cities it's how you got people yeah. to come into a bar to drink beer was to give them oysters. So could you describe what, but what people don't realize is that those oysters were extraordinarily local. Yes. Um, so New York in the 19th century is oyster crazy. It is food for everyone um, from rich to poor. And many of those oysters are consumed at Fulton market. So we were just talking about the market as being consumer facing when it's a place that's crowded all the time. One of the hip things to do if you're Charles Dickens or any other important visitor to New York is go down to Fulton Market and have some oysters that are supposedly the best oysters in the city. Um, that's the 19th century. You're not getting oysters sent through Fulton Market until just about the turn of the 20th century. Um, it was another market where oysters came into the city, but those uh, oyster markets folded as the business changed. And the fish wholesalers started specializing in oysters. And because of the pollution in the waters around New York, and this is how the business changes, the oysters that are consumed 
in New York uh, keep coming from further and further away. And the wholesalers handle that. But in the 19th century, there are mountains of oysters, uh, shoals of oysters in New York Harbor. And people are basically talking about what are the table. People are just picking them up and bringing them a couple miles to Fulton Market. That's absolutely true. Uh, New York Harbor is a great place for oysters. All the now incredibly polluted places in Brooklyn and Queens um, were places where they raised they, they raised oysters that's worth noting as well um they deliberately cultivated oysters um, oh yeah instead of just sort of finding them and assuming that's going to work so people would stake out ground underwater for lack of a better way to put it uh and those would be their oyster beds and you would have just a regular supply from there straight into fulton market well, early 19th century, it's going elsewhere first and often consumed in Fulton Market. But like I said, 20th century, it's it's through Fulton Market. Mm-hmm. Um, less known to us, less delectable to us, uh, turtles. Uh, yes. Turtles are a big business. Um, by the way, I looked this up at Mark's, Fo- Mark's Foods, which I guess should have the motto from to each according to their ability to pay. Uh, t- T- Snapper sells for 150 bucks for a five pound bucket. Wow. So I think we're in the wrong business. Uh, <laughs> that would be Snapper, uh, domestically raised Snapper. And you took me onto a deep dive reading the Virginia Department of Wildlife Resources on like regulations on harvesting and selling Snapper, which are immense. Um, You've probably and, done more of this than I have then. Yeah. I, well, it's, I had <laughs> no idea what a huge, what a huge market there still is since it's not like you see snapper on a lot of tables, uh, but I know it's delicious. Uh, yes. And people in the 19th century, I know that also Winfield Scott believed that uh, I think green turtle, which we'll talk about, or terrapin yeah. was the greatest, the greatest food vouchsafe to mankind. So there's, there's, I, I write about two, the, the, the green turtle, the, the very large turtle, and the diamondback. Now, I, I mm-hmm. there are uh, rules that prevent you from eating diamondback or green turtle anymore, since both are rare, borderline, ex, you know, on the verge of extinction. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can still eat turtle, and so there's substitutions that are, I do know this. I'm not even sure I wrote about it, but I remember looking at the contemporary stuff. There are substitutions at places where turtle is a very traditional dish where they will use turtles that are not endangered to make traditional turtle dishes. Um, but again, turtle terrapin, not the same thing. The green turtle is one market. Um, and they're sometimes served the same way. Green turtle is one market, uh, particularly in the mid 19th century when they're relatively abundant, very hard to transport as well. Um, and the, the meat spoils. So you have to have these giant live turtles carried all around New York City. Um, terrapin, the diamondback, um, much smaller creature, different dish made out of it. Uh, but, uh, you know, major Southern delicacy, um, also sold at, at Fulton Market. So why did you do a whole chapter on turtles? How could I, I resist mean, <laughs> when you find this? It's so weird. Well, it's so much material turned out to be there because everyone was just fascinated and turtle and terrapin sort of went together. Um, because they're cooked the same way, the same people are handling them. Um, and 
I had the I had the stuff. I well, I think I said this before that it's very hard to pick which fish or seafood to focus on. I had a chapter going on New York lobster for a while, and I didn't think I could finish it. Um, you mean a chapter on lobster from New York, yeah. New York waters? Yeah, yeah. New York used to be a big lobster place, um, uh-huh. which I just thought was amazing since I only think of it coming out of Maine. Uh, but yeah. you know, New Yorkers ate them, so you know, lobster just kept being sourced further and further and further away. I didn't think uh-huh. there was a chapter in that, although I was I was sorely tempted. Um, the, uh, the you have some figures on turtles for people who think this is unimportant. Uh, green turtle fishing in the Gulf of Mexico: twenty four thousand pounds in eighteen eighty. 500,000 pounds in 1890, and not too surprisingly, by 1895, it was almost completely depleted in Texas and Florida, the the green turtle fisheries. So this is part of this. This is the environmental story that you're completely – that you're always telling. Yeah, and this is – it's worth noting that this is not technically fish or seafood, um, but they're Mm -hmm. handled the same way. They're handled by the same people – they're handled with the same ethos, which is waste, 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 make money now. And I think for that reason, it fits in with the rest of the book. Yeah. So uh, people listening, I've been talking about the, the Gulf t- green turtle fishery. It's coming to New York in the 1890s. That might seem surprising to people, but there are more surprising facts, like how early people are bringing Pacific salmon from the Northwest to Fulton. It's what's the 18, as soon as the railroads are completed, yeah. basically salmon is start, starting to be shipped. I thought that was extraordinary. Yeah. That go really far away. Um, the, I, I don't know how to do this. You were talking about beef before, which is yeah. one of my motivations is to set up sort of the fish supply chain the same way that so many people have sh- set up the beef supply chain. Um, and as, as I point out, the fish supply chain is working over much larger distances much earlier. And the beef supply chain, really, when you look at it, is only sort of kicking in with the classic Texas to Chicago to the East Coast for about 10 or 20 years. The fish supply chain is working for oh, about 120, 150 years over incredibly long distances. And what I think is really interesting about it, which is not at all beef-like, is that the fish supply chain, the, the market to where it's going contracts. So in the 19th century, the Fulton fish market is supplying two-thirds of the country. I, I found oysters from Fulton going as far away as Denver at one point. Um, but then oh, into the 20th century, the distance that the food is traveling to the Fulton fish market is just getting longer and longer and longer, you know, eventually coming in by airplane uh, so that it can come from all over the world. So it's, 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 this is a podcast. I I don't have slides, but you can see (laughs) the, you can see sort of the, everything at Fulton, one side is shrinking, the other side is expanding instead of just everything shrinking and the whole thing disappearing. Before we get to wholesaling, um, it's like you were answering one question for me is uh, why we don't eat freshwater fish anymore, you know, at markets. Uh, it, it would seem reading the book that at, at one point, oysters and freshwater fish were what people wanted 
at full. Yes. But then gradually that changed simply because of overfishing. Yes. Um, and, and popular taste, um, popular mm-hmm. taste. The, the, one of the things, yeah, another chapter I could have done if I, I, I guess I, I, I starting to feel bad in this conversation because I was going to the <laughs> stuff where I, where I had the most sources. And I think there are good stories where I didn't have the most sources that are still worth telling. Um, the freshwater fish market, um, it's Jewish specialties. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's very big for about 80 years, uh, about 1880 to 1950, 1960. And, uh, you know, if you go even earlier, the freshwater fish before most of the East Coast rivers are spoiled one way or the other, that's just, you know, where the fish are. Um, you, you take the freshwater ones that are the easiest to catch. You don't even need a boat. Mm-hmm. Um, but later it's, it's just a very, it's a very particular ethnic specialty. So it's continuing into the 20th century, but the scale is much smaller than what's going on in the other parts of the market where they're taking their stuff but, in the sea. This is why you go to the fish market. You can't find largemouth bass for sale. You know, we, we have farm raised trout now. That's a okay. thing, but not like, but when, right. you know, not the, Many, many, many other freshwater species that you have to be, yeah. you know, interested in fishing in order to catch. Well, um, that, that that's a question of scale, right? Um, mm-hmm. You you can't take a a boat on a river and grab hundreds of freshwater fish at once. It just doesn't work the same way. But you can do that in the ocean in the 20th century. Um, so if you can take more fish, you're going to have an increased supply, and the price is going to go down. Um, I mean, not that I'm a fisherman, strange admission, cause I'm not, uh, but I don't think you can just, you know, put in a line with a hundred hooks and get a hundred fresh, you know, striped bass at the end of the process. You had me thinking about that. I have to yeah. admit by the time I was done with the book, if I could go yeah. to like Lake Anna or some other reservoir in Virginia, if you had a commercial fishery there, how much would you catch? And I, I'm sure you would deplete it very quickly. Um, yes. Who knows? Yes. Maybe. I mean, that that obviously was the cycle when you're hearing about like their. This is the cycle they were kind of used to. This boom and bust cycle. You know, you're harvesting hundreds of thousands of pounds of green turtle in 1895, and the fishery is depleted in 1895. In the 19th century, they just must have regarded this as you know, okay, now we'll switch to something else. This is just the way it is. Happens to buffalo. Happens to green turtles. Happens to whatever. Sport fishing and industrial fishing is an important division. Um, and the Fulton mm-hmm. fish market was not the place for sport fishermen. Um, there is a great anecdote you tell about the Smithsonian ichthyologist. Which yeah. I've never, I've never said that word. And he would go and do twice a year to do his collections at Fulton. Uh, yeah, just to what, see what I, they got. Yeah. And what was the I now I can't now now I can't find the note, but it was the 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 amount of stuff that he could find there. This is the nineteenth late nineteenth century. It's at least thirty six species. I believe no eighty. Yeah, I, we're, yeah. I mean, it's just extraordinary the amount of stuff that's being brought in there. Well, by that time they are dragging large nets across the bottom, and mm-hmm. they'll be going for a commercial fish, and they're going to get everything. And, you know, they're not necessarily going through everything 
you know, before they bring it back, they don't care about throwing things over. So all sorts of species are going to end up there. But I have another note um, from the 1880s on like the volume of particular species sold at the market that year. And you can see it's dominated by three, four, five fish, depending on the time. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about, finally, let's get to wholesaling, how yeah. Fulton market becomes Fulton fish market. So um, how did that happen? How does, how did wholesaling start to dominate and how does wholesaling work? What, what, you make a, it's, you have a very nice explanation of why wholesaling is particularly necessary for fish. So yeah. could you, could you develop that? Well, let's let's do this from two ends. First, on the consumer end, we've already mentioned this. The sort of public traffic of the market collapses as the shape of Manhattan changes and people come in via the bridge rather than the ferry. Um, the Fulton Market has just passed by. It's no longer a place where you go for oysters. It's no longer a place you go to get your regular stuff. Fewer people are living in the neighborhood. Uh, it becomes a much more industrial neighborhood, really the last industrial neighborhood in Manhattan and not a residential place. So part of the reason wholesaling dominates is because there's just no competition besides wholesale fish, dom- uh, wholesale fish sales. Um, with respect to those wholesale fish sales, um, the, the, probably the, the first thing is, the proximity of the water. So it's going to begin to dominate fish sales in New York because people know you could get the freshest fish if you could buy it right off the boat. Wholesaling develops from those early right off the boat sales because it becomes necessary to increase the scale of fish at the market to begin to invest in boats. And those boats have to go further away, which means they have to be bigger boats and it's easiest for the wholesale uh, for wholesale dealers to have enough money to get a stake in a boat to guarantee their supply. And when you have lots and lots of lots of fish coming, uh, then you need to be able to sell it. And so you have to hope that you know, more and more people are going to collect in the market. And, and these are not you know, individual consumers. These are like restaurateurs and hoteliers. And um, they're going to begin to uh, to buy in bulk so that they can transport it very quickly. Improvements in refrigeration are necessary. Improvements in transportation are necessary. But there are wholesalers, even in the mid-19th century, who are ready to exploit these efficiencies once they became available to them. So at first, we've got these – well, they're still sailing fishing smacks – yeah. with a, a sort of a, a, a well in the middle. This is yep. what makes a smack, which enables you to keep the fish alive. And they're coming from Long Island, New York Harbor, down the New Jersey coast, maybe even from the, maybe from the Chesapeake Bay uh, by the late night, by the 1870s. North uh, and Carolina. North Carolina. And they're bringing mm. fish there. Um, they're not processing on the boat, correct? They just They just bring what they have. That's really interesting. Um, see if I can think of an example. Some are. Um, it depends on the. It depends on the price of the good itself. Um, okay. Oh no! It's actually, even more so. Uh, so we, we were talking about. You were talking about wells. First, wells are keeping live fish. When ice becomes readily available, 
And if you, the, the fish is valuable enough, you'll process the fish on the boat, pack your fish well with ice and leave it there. Uh, but that's 20th century. Uh, it's early and, to mid 20th century. So uh, gradually these fishing uh, boats are increasing in size. Yes. And they're not stopping anywhere else <laughs> and transshipping fish. They're coming right to Fulton Fish Market. Uh, and unloading their fish there. That's the char- yes. that's the charm of Fulton Fish Market uh, for yes. people who like such things, but also for the wholesaler. Um, this yes. is they. This is where the middleman is. Yes, yeah, and you know, and they will direct both sides of the supply chain. They'll have an interest in the boats, um, and you know, therefore, there won't be competition on that end if the person selling it as an interest in the boat it's not like you get off the boat and bid for it you go right to the person who's sponsoring your 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 trip they'll also have it contracts and long-term relationships with buyers so the people who are coming to the market know that there are people who buy whatever fish because that's where all the buyers go and then all the knowledge about the different species sort of collects in the market because they know where the fish are because they're talking to the people who are bringing it in. And they know what people want to eat because they're talking to the people who are selling it to consumers. So this is what you were saying. This is why I quoted your quote I gave from you at the in the intro. This this uh, the an inevitably uneven supply of this product, fish. You require yeah. knowledge and technology. So we've mentioned ice, which of course you know a lot about. People can go back. I'll, I'll put the, in the show notes about your books on refrigeration and ice. Uh, and but now we've also got this. There's mo- knowledge is working on multiple different levels. It's yes. what it's it's what fish is is uh, is available. What fish is desired? How to preserve that fish? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Let's get to to the processing. I don't know why I'm so interested in this, but the our wholesalers, how much are they processing? As much as a consumer wants? Is that how what a wholesaler ends up? I mean, and what does processing mean in say 1890s? So, so no, uh, no, there is a lot of waste. Um, and what processing means depends on the fish. We were talking about shad earlier, um, which oh, is yes. incredibly. An incredibly popular fish uh, in the 19th century and early 20th century uh, in the Northeast. Uh, but shad is an incredibly bony fish, and, and so the South, you. Too. I just want. I just want to say that it's along the Eastern Seaboard. It's always that's been true. You know, there's still, that's true. There's still a, a, and, one of the most important Virginia political events every spring is a shad roast. And the the shad are uh, taken from as far away as Georgia and Florida uh, and sold at Fulton Market. Uh, But a a shad is an incredibly bony fish, and you really had to be a professional fish cutter in order to turn a very bony fish into a boneless filet. And so there are whole side businesses in Fulton Market um, that are just making, for lack of a better way to put it, and then use an anachronistic term, shad burgers, um, and then selling the the remains of the fish to cat food companies. Yeah, it's uh, we could I, I we could do a whole podcast about shad because I, I'm you know, I'm slightly shad obsessive based on where I grew up, and uh, I had a guy I went to high school with Mark Marino. The Moreno family was the last probably fish market in, in all of southern New Jersey that could fillet shad. Uh, 
Um, and they, New York Times even did a profile on them once because they were so, you know, magical in their ability to fillet shad. Uh, but I have to say, we'll, we'll talk about the moral rod of filleting in just a little bit. Um, because that, I, I, I think I, I judge that as a, as a very pro, a profound ethical problem. Um, the, how far then were wholesalers at first are going to restaurants and there are a lot of restaurants. There's a lot of market for it, but they're also starting to go to sort of neighborhood fish markets as yes. grocery stores, neighborhood markets, as New York grows and grows and grows. Now they're selling to those individual markets. When do they, when do you start to see in the records, do you start to see them making connections with people in sit other cities I mean, when are they? When, when does New York become the sort of uh, to fish what Chicago was to be? Well, they're making connections to other cities very early on in terms of sales. But what's happening is that they get competition uh, from Philadelphia, from Baltimore, um, Boston. Eventually, starts you know, consuming its own fish, uh, although a lot of it still goes to New York. Uh, so they're, they, they reach out to other places, but then, um, other places begin to, to process their own fish and bypass Fulton fish market. However, the demand for fish in and around New York City is increasing, uh, all through this time, um, through most of the 20th century. Uh, so what happens is, um, they can still make money selling to a smaller area. So and, the comparative advantage that Fulton has yeah. is just the enormous size of New York City. Um, yes. And, and, um, yes, yes. And that demand is early and they sell far, far away early. But when they have competition, they can continue to make money. I mean, volume drops through the 20th century. Don't get me wrong. But what happens is the Fulton fish market begins to specialize in more expensive fish. And they'll sell it to more um, discriminating New York restaurants. Uh, and they can still make money that way as opposed to doing huge volume business like they do in the 19th century. So you look at the map, you'd say, oh, well, trawlers are going from the Grand Banks are going to go to Boston. It's closer. But that brings us back to technology. You can go to New York if you want. You've got First, you've got plenty of ice. Yep. Uh, doesn't matter. Just another couple hundred miles, big deal. Then with the refrigeration, you can go even much, much, much farther. You can go from the South Atlantic. You can go from the Pacific. You can go to New York just because you know you can sell your fish in the enormous market of New York City. Yeah, yeah, and that's 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 the story of bluefin tuna in a nutshell. It's yeah, something talk that talk about talk about bluefin tuna, which uh, bluefin tuna is something that nobody wants in the 19th century. It annoys most of the fishmongers uh, and certainly the fishermen because it keeps destroying their gnats. Uh, but then uh, a market develops uh, in the 1970s, uh, particularly in Japan, and the technology now exists so that you can preserve the tuna as it goes all the way across the planet. And because it's such an expensive fish, you can make money selling that. So it'll uh, you know be... Um, you're caught in the Atlantic and sold in Japan and it's still going to work or sometimes sold at, at Fulton fish market itself. Uh, but it, it, the technology is what changes everything. But the point being is it's a very expensive fish. So you don't have to work in as great volumes in order to make money. Um, scallops are another one that they just huh. discover there's a market for 
Um, shark. Yeah. Shark. Which, I, do, I do spend some time on shark. Um, do, all yeah. these trash fishes, um, what they call trash fishes turn out to be really sophisticated delicacies. And then people begin to specialize in it at the market. Yeah, I remember once on a fishing pier in the Chesapeake where someone was catching a, a skate and uh, one local was saying, that's a trash fish. And I was thinking, well, not in France. It's not, uh, yeah. you know, uh, this is, this is, but it's, it's what, it's what the market will bear. That's, that's yeah. brings us to yeah. it. And what culture, what culture, what culture wants it, it determines the market. Yeah. I, I spend a lot of time on a few fishes and throw in a little bit about some of the other ones. Um, and that's just best to make it a readable narrative that comes in around 200 pages. Uh, I couldn't yeah. quite do every single fish in the sea. <laughs> so uh, let's just talk briefly about a further change in technology. So ice, refrigeration, that's all fine. But the trawlers are becoming eventually factories. Yes. Uh, and I mean, it, you know, like a, a local farmer near me often says, if a farmer wants to make money, they have to do as much value. They have to add as much value to the product on the farm before they give it to a wholesaler or to the, 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 con, the consumer. Um, in other words, you want to slaughter the chicken yourself. You don't want to give a live chicken to Purdue. You know, just that's, you just, you're going to lose money that way. Um, obviously the fishermen realize the more they can do on their ships, the better for them when they go to market. So what do they end up doing in these, like these factory ships? Um, well, of course the, the trawlers, a lot of them are uh, owned by foreign countries and they're once you can get far away from American waters and run the giant nets, you know, all over the sea, you can just take enormous amounts of fish at once. Uh, so you can, um, uh, just scoop up everything, uh, process it on the boat, turn it into something that's sellable. Uh, but it, the, the Fulton fish market wholesalers don't really care. They'll buy from Russians um, as soon as they'll buy for Americans. If they can sell uh, a fish that uh, has a market, uh, this comes in with the invention of um, first fish fillets uh, in the twenties and then fish sticks in the 50s, uh, which yeah, is just a whole bunch of fillets. I, I, I just, because this is very, this gets us kind of back to your yeah. Harvey Wiley territory. This is how, this is how the f fish as a food changes to the, the person who, who, the, who, the consumer, literally the person right. who consumes it. Um, so first the fillets, because that, well, that uh, changes what fish is for people. Yes. So you, uh, the idea of a fish fillet is to take all the work out of, cooking fish you turn it you, you take something you you get all the bad parts of it out you turn it into something manageable that you could just put in a frying pan and then stick between a bun um that's a 20s thing although there's some controversy about who exactly invented the filet uh it is you know sort of becomes a thing outside of fulton market but then new york takes to it uh, because it's sort of tuned into the rest of the industry on the 50s is where you get you know, frozen breaded fish sticks. And what these fish are is basically indiscriminate white fish taken from the North Atlantic by giant trawlers, probably not American. Uh, and 
Fulton Fish Market at that point uh, is is willing to to sell them uh, because at least for a while they can compete against you know Gordon's of Boston and other uh, non New York institutions uh, for a while for a, a fair bet. Um, it's interesting how, of course, that, I mean, that is why no one wants to eat shad now while people are crazy about shad, uh, you know, uh, in the 19th century, it's just that a fillet conditions you to believe the fish don't have bones. Uh, to, to be yeah. fair, the shad are running on some pretty polluted rivers. So there are, well, they are. a lot, yeah. a lot get, I mean, fewer can... shad available, even if you did want them. Yeah. Well, I'm just, I'm, I, I can, we'll, we'll get to that in just a, a little bit. Cause I, I have actually a very, a memory of a, when I was very, very small about that. But the, uh, what I mean is, is that we are, the whole attitude of what fish is changes so that, um, so that gradually, I think there's a way in which, uh, you know, my generation conditioned on fish sticks uh, really is surprised to yes. discover fish have, have bones. Yes, you know? and heads and, it, and it, scales. It, and head, they have heads, you know, um, which are delicious, I should say. Um, fish let's talk about heads, the mob. Fish heads. <laughs> Rolly poly yeah. fish heads. Let's talk about the mob. Oh, am I showing my this age? Is where, <laughs> this is where <laughs> – yeah, you go. <laughs> Let's talk about the mob because when I told people that I was going to record something about Fulton Fish Market immediately, it's like, oh yeah, the mob used to run Fulton Fish Market. So this is for New Yorkers. This is part of their mythology of Fulton oh. Fish Market. For you know the for 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 the cultured the cultured esthetes, it was Joseph Mitchell, uh, and you know up in the old hotel and stuff like that. But for everyone else, it's oh yeah, the mob used to run Fulton Fish Market. So. What was the mob's connection to Fulton Fish Market, and uh, did the did the mob run Fulton Fish Market? What does "run" mean? All right, um, I have to, I have to start this. I have to start this with with a. I won't I won't do a full story, but I will. I have to do a, a little bit of author background here. So this book's been out for a year, uh, coming into coming into paperback very very soon. Possibly while you're listening to this, it's now available in paperback. Um, so I, and I, I went to New York and I did a lot of, uh, uh, sort of online promotion. So it, it sold quite well in hardback. Uh, and a lot of people bought it are people who worked at Fulton Fish Market. And I have gotten a fair amount of pushback on just one thing. I mean, nobody's arguing <laughs> about where the buildings are. Nobody's arguing about how important particular fish are. Um, they're arguing about the role of the mob in the Fulton fish market. And, and for me, it's not something I wanted to really write about. Um, to me, it's the least interesting thing about the Fulton fish market. I'm interested in fish and supply chains and the people who, you know, ran these operations. Um, because it's not like there's, you know, guys who are killing people at night and showing up to, take fish off boats during the day you know it's it's uh it, we're talking about two separate aspects of of a of a singular now, place now so who's naive my, jonathan <laughs> <laughs> we're getting there um so my my section on the mafia at the fulton fish market comes from 
many, 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 many press stories about the role of the mafia in the Fulton fish market. So, you know, this is what most people knew about Fulton fish market if they grew up around New York, because it's about the only thing that would ever be covered. Um, but the people who, uh, you know, push back on what I wrote are not people who are saying, oh, the mob controlled everything. You're so naive, Jonathan. There are people who worked there who said, I worked there for 30 years and there is no mafia presence at the Fulton Fish Market. This is a myth. You are perpetuating what the media is saying. And, it, and to, you know, on one level, I plead guilty because what other sources am I going to get? Um, you know, I wrote this during the pandemic. It's based primarily on newspaper accounts. Lots and lots and lots of newspaper accounts, I might add. Uh, but primarily on newspaper accounts. But I also think I'm right. Um, so if we're talking about the role of the mob in the Fulton Fish Market, um, the right way, I think the right way to look at it is somewhere in the middle. This is not good enough for the people who work there, and it's not good enough for the people who are convinced you know, that there's a, a mob movie to be written about this. But this is my middle position on the mafia and the Fulton Fish Market. Um, the Fulton Fish Market is... Well, I, in fact, I should do a little bit of, of the, the full, the mafia, the mafia's leverage in the Fulton fish market comes from or came from control of the union that unloaded boats or unloaded trucks. If we're getting closer to the present, uh, and loaded fish into other people's trucks or, or cars or vehicles or however they're getting it away. They're doing the transportation at the market. And because there's not a lot of refrigeration at the market, if they're not going to pick up your stuff in a timely manner, you are going to lose your entire, your entire purchase. Um, so they play a pretty important role and they leverage that into an operation that makes a lot of money uh, for uh, people involved in organized crime. However, this does not mean that everybody who worked at the Fulton Fish Market was a mobster. I look at it as, um, it, you know, if you've seen The Sopranos, I would compare it to the garbage routes in New Jersey, uh, where Tony comes down and says once, one, at one point and says, look, you're not, don't sell cocaine, don't murder people on your garbage routes, because we don't want to attract attention. We want a steady source of income Tony doesn't say this, but this is essentially what he's arguing. Um, we want a steady source of income from these routes. And if you go out and commit crimes while you're running them, then people are going to investigate and that steady source of income is going to dry up. The union that is requiring bribes to get you to handle the fish runs up the price of fish in and around New York City. Um, for the most case, the wholesalers are passing the extra cost on to others, uh, the people who are buying, uh, and they're still making money. Uh, but it's not like, you know, showing up at the Fulton fish market is going to get you whacked or something like that. It's not like, um, there are mobsters on every corner. There are people in firms that are dominated or, you know, have Mobs, mob figures invested in them 
But this does not mean that the mob controls the Fulton Fish Market, and it doesn't mean that the presence of organized crime is somehow visible in its day-to-day operation. That is my that is my controversial opinion on the mob and the Fulton Fish Market, and it is my middle ground opinion on the mob and the Fulton Fish Market. Uh, interested readers can take it however they see fit, and just know that. Even if you don't like my mob opinion, uh, the fish stuff will still probably work for you. <laughs> well, Fulton Fish Market is now the new Fulton Fish Market. It's not near the water. It's in the Bronx. Uh, it's surrounded by parking lots, according to the photograph that I, I in, in your book. Uh, before it was moved completely, it became a theme park. A sort of, uh, it became, it was Rousified. It was, it was one of, uh, the Rouse Corporation's developments like Harbor Place in Baltimore. And it, um, in, in a way, a in, yeah, it, how it became sort of South Street Seaport. I'm, I'm so, curious about that just, whole story. Yeah, back up for a second. Um, um, so the, the market operations moved to the Bronx yes. and then, you know, the neighborhood itself transforms into a residential neighborhood. And, you know, there's now um, a really nice food court in the remains of one of the old Fulton Fish Market buildings um, that is, you know, I mean, beyond Rousified. I, I don't know. I can't think of a <laughs> Colonial Williamsburg is probably the closest analogy I can think of, but it's it's probably more expensive to eat in that food court than it is. um uh, the, John George is the chef who did the whole thing. I mean, it's really impressive. Mm-hmm. I, I had a dosa for breakfast there the last time I was in the neighborhood. Um, but, you know, and they, you know, invoke the history of the market in many places in that building, which is nice, right? I mean, you should, yeah. should, there should be a plaque out in front of it just noting what was going on all over. Uh, but I mean, I think that's probably one of my most important points. You know, you think of a market as being like a single building with a lot of stalls in it. The Fulton Fish Market was, wasn't just, it was actually at its height, it was three buildings. But even then, a lot of the fish operations are going on all over the neighborhood. When I said it was an industrial neighborhood, the main industry was fish. So you could go to the market, uh, and then you could, you know, later in the evening, you know, you could go pick up some fish fillets at the fillets down the street because it was just a big fish related neighborhood. Uh, and a lot of that is now gone. Um, but you know, there's a tiny bits of it left and you know, it's, it's yuppified again as it's a desirable neighborhood to live in. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to conclude by um, pursuing some of the uh, things that you've been saying about uh, sources and uh, how you came to the topic and uh, basically how you put the conception, the difficulties in conceptualizing the book and then putting it together in one piece um, if you've listened to previous conversations with you, uh, knowing about ice and refrigeration, was that, and because there's a lot of ice and refrigeration in this book, is that how you came to this topic or was that, is there a different, a different route? It's, it's funny. That was my, that was my pitch to Columbia University Press for, um, the contract, which is, I'm, I'm not a New York City history person. But I'm a food guy and I'm an ice and refrigeration guy. So if we're talking about fish, I'm, I'm your guy. I'm, I'm well qualified to do it. 
that's not how I came to the topic. The way I came to the topic is that I'm a, a Joseph Mitchell freak. Um, so, you know, even if you are no interest in this book, or if you do have interest in this book and you would like another book on New York City history that's much better than mine, um, <laughs> only because I think it's one of the best books ever written, it would be Up in the Old, Old Hotel by Joseph Mitchell. Uh, Mitchell was the uh, city reporter for The New Yorker for about half a century. Um, he wrote sort of tangentially about um, Fulton Fish Market a lot, but I knew that he never put together an actual history at the place. Um, so I, I cite Mitchell a lot in my work, um, but I you know went and got a lot of other material that I could find about the Fulton Fish Market and how it operated. But Mitchell is my inspiration. Uh, Mitchell is both a primary and a secondary source when dealing with this topic. It's certainly the first person who looked at it in any depth. Um, but, you know, it's not a complete history. And you, using mostly newspapers after that, I, I think I provided at least a, a framework for people to understand the place. And this really is, it's the first history of the Fulton Fish Market ever written. Uh, so anyone coming afterward will have to deal with it. When you said that you had a lot of material on like New York lobsters, where do you get material on New York lobsters? Newspapers. They came up all newspapers. the time. Yeah. I mean, so this like 19th century newspapers are full of like, let's tell you some something about New York Harbor lobsters. They're, they're fantastic. Oh, they're, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm gonna lo- on the, in the case of lobsters, again, I, lobsters are not really in the book. But I can tell you there are uh, lobster parlors all over the city. Uh, in the 19th century, you would go out and you know, the lobster is the center of the meal. And you know, it just turns out they came from New York waters until New York ate all its local lobster. So we, you alluded to this earlier. What was the challenge in like conceptualizing, like what to leave out? Uh, as other, I mean, it helps to have 200 word, uh, 200 pages. That's good. Word limits are always helpful. But, you know, still, why not a chapter on New York lobsters instead of turtles or something like that? What, what, why, why did you make these certain ch- choices that you did? Well, let, let's go with Shad for a second. Um, before I started sure. this book, I had never heard of the Shad. I am from New Jersey, but I am inland. Um, so I got whatever. They, fish. Come, they come, you're from, you're from Princeton, right? I am. The, uh, the biggest shad, the only legal shad netting on the Delaware River occurs at Lambertville. So oh, interesting. Right next door to you. Yeah. Interesting. So anyway. Well, when I was going to Princeton, we barely ever left Princeton, except to go to the city. Yeah. Um, but that's a whole nother story. Um, so it's inland. Um, and so I didn't know what a shad was, but shad just kept coming up over and over and over over again. It, Mitchell covers shad in the 50s. Um, that's probably the first time I ever read about a shad is reading about it in Mitchell. But then when it comes up over and over and over again, you just realize, oh my God, there's a huge story here. So I can write about like little parades through Fulton Fish Market of the first shad of local shad of the season. And just imagine what these, you know, fishermen and fishmongers are doing walking through the market with a, a <laughs> fish raised up over their heads. I mean, that makes perfect sense to me, but yeah. I, I, I know I'm singular in this way. <laughs> well, which is a whole nother thing. You, I don't think most people appreciate that fish are supposed to be seasonal, right? Yeah. Fish, the fish are available at particular times of year uh, until they're available all the time because you can just preserve them indefinitely. Um, 
So that, that, that's how you do it. For at least that's how I did it. When there's a lot of material, I, I went for that material. There was a lot of material on turtle and green turtle and terrapin. Uh, combine those two together in a single chapter, not because they're fish, but I think they just tell you a lot about the market and they're treated the same way the most expensive fish are. Uh, so it, it still fits in, even if I'm stretching the definition of the word seafood a little bit. I never ask people this question, but um, since it's been a year since you wrote it, you're prolific. Uh, the paperback is coming out and I'm sure you're working on something else. Do you want to yeah, talk about that? Yeah, I'll do a little bit. Um, I'm doing the history of the chili pepper in America. Oh, that that's going to be a that's that's the bestseller. I hope so. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it slower than I did the fish market because it's not all the it's not all the material in one place. I, I mean, I think I alluded to this briefly before. This was my pandemic project when the world was freaking out. I was just sitting here in this very room. Um, reading New York newspapers, uh, in online databases, um, kept me sane. <laughs> um, and so I just wanted, I mean, I went to New York three times. So, I mean, it's, there is some archival work, but it's mostly, it's, it's, it's a lot of Mitchell and a lot of newspapers in this book. Uh, for the chili pepper, it's, it's much more far flung. I'm going to do it slower. Um, but I've, I've I've already I've already started writing. Have you thought about? I mean, what's the what's your argument? What's the sort of focus? What's the sort of what's the question you're trying to solve? Uh, well, the question I'm trying to solve this is very that's a very highfalutin question. I can actually answer hey, that. I, I, I ask undergraduates <laughs> that question. Well, <laughs> it is a very this is a good question. Um, so the chili pepper is a very old food in the United States. But it is a regional cuisine. So my question to answer is, how does it move from being a regional specialty to something at the center of all modern American cuisine that everybody knows and loves? And mm -hmm. so you can find that in lots of different places and lots of different manifestations because the chili pepper isn't a food. It's an ingredient. So I'm not just writing about chili peppers. I get to write about, you know, chili and hot sauce um, mm -hmm. and paprika yeah. uh, and all sorts and, of other. And, and salsa. Uh, oh, there's, yep. a, there's, a clip, there's a clip from Seinfeld that goes with this. I mean, which is kind of the, the question, you know, why did, how did salsa become more popular than ketchup? Yeah, uh, I know. Yeah, that's, that's a kind of that's a that's a that's a problem. It's a cultural problem. And also, like, I guess you say, how does something that's regional and niche Yep. become powerful and big. Uh, granted, yeah. it's multi-regional, um, but yeah. the, the chili pepper travels all around the world. And, and the other thing is it's an immigrant thing because the chili pepper you know, comes from this hemisphere, goes all around the world with the Colombian exchange, but then it keeps coming back over and over and over again with different immigrant groups. And I think that's, that's an, cool. That's an interesting point. Yeah, and that's, that's I think that's cool point. too. So I, I do, you know, it's, it's a pretty, going to be a pretty broad book and jump around. But it just gives me the opportunity to read very, very widely and try to put it into, again, a story that's not easy where the narrative isn't easy, but hopefully people will make sense of it. Well, my guest today has been Jonathan Reese. His most recent book is The Fulton Fish Market, A History. I just have to say that on Twitter, I had suggested Working with the Fishes, which is, I still think, the best title. But 
Fulton Fish Market history does explain on the box what's inside. There's no doubt about that. Jonathan, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Uh, You're welcome. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 